0: Chapter 5. New Age Humanism, A Kingdom Counterfeit In a stunningly brief period of time, a new and powerful world religion has swept across America and the entire planet. Popularly called the New Age Movement by its own leaders, this new religion is rapidly and dramatically reshaping man's views of God and the universe. The New Age is upon us. So say a good number of contemporary social thinkers, Christian cult experts, and radio and television evangelists. The New Age movement, we are told, will be used by the Antichrist to establish a new world religion. Much of the world will be duped by this masterful political genius and leader, but more than this, he will be considered a great spiritual teacher. In fact, somewhere at this very moment, a man is perhaps being groomed for world leadership. He is to be Satan's man, the Antichrist. His number will be 666. God's kingdom will fail during the so-called Church Age, while Satan's kingdom will succeed. God's work is viewed as a failure. The power of God's Spirit manifested in millions of Christians throughout the world will not be enough to push back the advances of New Age humanism, an operation energized by the devil himself. Only the personal appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ and his reign on the earth will subvert the designs of the devil or postpone them in Hunt's view. This scenario of the last days is typical of many of the books that have come out criticizing the sinister designs of new age humanism. It seems that this new form of secular humanism is the final satanic conspiracy that will bring on the great tribulation, the rise of antichrist, and the rapture of the saints. Is there another explanation for these humanistic expressions? Is it possible that although New Age humanism is demonic, it really is no long-term threat to a healthy church? Could God, in fact, be using New Age humanism to spur his people on to kingdom work? Instead of fearing New Age humanism, Christians should be working for the advancement of God's kingdom through the preaching of the gospel and the application of God's law to every area of life. The advances of new age humanism are the result of Christians acting as if no good can be accomplished before Jesus returns to establish his millennial kingdom. The same could be said for the advances of the social gospel, communism, Islam, secular humanism, scientism, evolutionism, atheism, and every other ism that works to counter the effects of the gospel and copies the ideals of God's kingdom. We tend to blame the devil for our neglect we should recall that paganism did not advance in Israel until Israel denied God. In this chapter, we will show that the threats of New Age humanism are real. At the same time, we hope to demonstrate that New Age humanism is simply a perverse counterfeit of Biblical Christianity. New Age humanism has advanced because the modern church has not been a diligent teacher of sound Biblical doctrine, and at the same time, the modern church has not been receptive to the primary tenets of the Christian faith. This has led many Christians to adopt a smorgasbord view of religion. The counterfeit nature of Satan's kingdom cannot be recognized because few Christians realize the nature of the genuine kingdom now present and operating in the world. New Age Realities John Naisbit of Megatrend's fame sees a new age dawning at the corporation level. Old industrial structures are being dismantled to compete in the information society of the future. Look at how far we have already come. The industrial society transformed workers into consumers. The information society is transforming employees into capitalists. But remember this, both capitalism and socialism were industrial systems. The information society will bring forth new structures, and the companies reinventing themselves are already evolving toward that new reality. But there's more. Mark Satin has described a New Age politics that will heal self and society. Frit Joff Capra, author of The Turning Point, sees changes in science that will affect society and culture. Marilyn Ferguson, whose The Aquarian Conspiracy is considered by many as the manifesto of the New Age movement, describes a new mind, a turnabout in consciousness, a network powerful enough to bring about radical change in our culture. Much of this literature is rooted in Eastern and occult philosophy, emphasizing oneness, monism, the one, the unity, and interdependence of all things. There is a clever mix between Eastern religious philosophy and Western religious forms. The 60s counterculture brought the esoteric music and religious ideology of the East into the West. The Beatles made Eastern music popular when George Harrison introduced the Indian sitar music of Ravi shankar on their rubber soul album transcendental meditation was also popularized by the Beatles. some of those in the ecology movement base their concern for the environment on the inherent oneness of the universe man and nature are one in essence man is not much different from the animals he is only higher on the great scale of being the environment should be protected not as a stewardship under god but because we are all god nature included The advance of Eastern thought was gradual, but layer upon layer of this mix eventually made it stick like epoxy. As Christianity steadily lost its hold on the heart and mind of the nation, softer forms of religious beliefs were more easily embraced. Christianity's drift into an emphasis on experience over objective, written revelation has made it easy prey for the pure subjectivism of Eastern thought. Oz Guinness wrote about the meeting of East and West in 1973 in what has become a standard Christian analysis of the decline of secular humanism, the dust of death. He tells us that the swing to the East has come at a time when Christianity is weak at just those points where it would need to be strong to withstand the East. He goes on to show the three basic weaknesses within the church that open it up to Eastern influences. The first is its compromised, deficient understanding of revelation. Without biblical historicity and a veracity behind the word of God, theology can only grow closer to Hinduism. Second, the modern Christian is drastically weak in an unmediated personal experiential knowledge of God. Often what passes for religious experience is a communal emotion felt in church services, in meetings, in singing, or contrived fellowship. Few Christians would know God on their own. Third, the modern church is often pathetically feeble in the expression of its focal principle of community. It has become the local social club, preaching shop or minister-dominated group. With these weaknesses, modern Christianity cannot hope to understand why people have turned to the East, let alone stand against the trend and offer an alternative. Western Christians have a faith that is extremely blurred at the edges. This opens them up to any and all spiritual counterfeits. Many New Agers seem to say some good things, but the philosophy behind their emphasis is out of accord with biblical Christianity. They talk about decentralization, building from the bottom up, networking, and the importance of the individual and his involvement in the corporate and political processes. The emphasis on changing the individual, usually through raising the consciousness, which results in the metamorphosis of peripheral institutions like the family, church, business, and civil governments at the local, state, and national level, is also a prominent feature of New Age humanism. So why are many Christians afraid of New Age humanism? The answer is obvious. New Age humanism is anti-Christian to the core. It is a utopian dream built on a flawed understanding of man's nature and a devotion to a westernized Eastern philosophy, where God is nothing more than a cosmic idea. The copy on the dust jacket to Ferguson's The Aquarian Conspiracy shows that the Christian's fears are justified. A leaderless but powerful network is working to bring about radical change in the United States. Its members have broken with certain key elements of Western thought, and they may even have broken continuity with history. With all their seemingly good emphases, the New Age movement is at heart humanistic. Man is the center of the universe. Materialistic, self-actualization, is all-important, and anti-God, the God of the Bible, is dismissed in favor of self-deification. The American public, with its inability to distinguish biblical truth from anti-Christian religious subtleties, is easily sucked in by the seemingly harmless religious and cultural goals of New Age humanism. It seems that everybody is on the New Age bandwagon. This fact alone makes it difficult to speak against it. New Age terminology and thought have been woven into the warp and woof of American culture. There are New Age health food stores, New Age music, New Age medicine, and New Age politics. The pantheon of pagan gods has been dropped, but there is enough Eastern baggage to do us much harm. Political Counterfeits Politics is not immune from New Age thinking, just as it is not immune to secular humanism. Politics is energized by religious tenets. Even secular humanism, which claims to be non-religious, is steeped in religious assertions. Political vision stems from our deepest beliefs concerning reality and value. Politics follows faith. In general, the history of non-Christian politics has been the quest for political salvation. For example, the early Roman state presented itself as the savior of the people. By the time of dominion... 81-96, 81 through 96, it had become common to address him as Dominius et Duis, my Lord and God. The coins in Domitian's day, like the coins in our day, that reflect a once Christian past, were a daily reminder of the divinity of the state. The coin brought to Jesus in Matthew 22 through 15 through 22 had the following inscription Tiberius Caesar Divi Og. Usti, Filius, Augustus, or in translation, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the deified Augustus. The symbolic meaning is clear. A new day is dawning for the world. The divine sovereign king, born in the historical hour ordained by the stars, has come to power on land and sea inaugurates the cosmic era of salvation salvation is to be found in none other save augustus and there is no other name given to man in which they can be saved this is the climax of the advent proclamation of the roman empire rome's kingdom and king were counterfeits of god's kingdom and king rome hoped to establish a new age outside the redemptive work of jesus christ even the unbelieving jews fell for it in rejecting their promised messiah they cried out We have no king but Caesar, John 1915. Modern American politics has not shaken Rome's preoccupation with status salvation, although its forms are much more subtle. The Smorgasbord Mentality Many entertainers believe that they are the nation's conscience and its only guiding light. Shirley MacLaine is an example. Her popular books and movies present a nicely camouflaged occult worldview. What would have been thought ridiculous 20 years ago, today is considered to be normal. Shirley MacLaine claims that her book, Out on a Limb, was indirectly inspired by an extraterrestrial named the Mayan. No one seems to blink at such an assertion. Why? Spiritual discernment is at a minimum. For example, a 1982 Gallup poll claimed that 23% of the American public believed in some form of reincarnation. This does not count those people who merely tolerate such a view in light of our religiously pluralistic culture but do not embrace it as a personal belief. People are so confused about what is true that they tend to believe anything and everything. Doug Gruthius has called this the smorgasbord mentality. This leads to the proliferation of counterfeits. Pluralism refers to a diversity of religions, worldviews, and ideologies existing at one time in the same society. We are socially heterogeneous. One religion or philosophy doesn't command and control the culture. Instead, many viewpoints exist. We have Buddhist and Baptist, Christian Reformed, and Christian Scientist, all on the same block, or at least in the same city. This can have a leveling effect on religious faith. Our nation is steeped in pluralism, tolerance, diversity, freedom, and the democratic spirit. All lifestyles are permitted. Homosexuality is tolerated because we live in a diverse society. Abortion is legal because you cannot impose your morality on someone else who has a different set of moral standards. The only view that is not tolerated is the view that does not tolerate all views. Christianity came on the scene with Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. John 14.6 How intolerant of him to exclude Mayan spirits, the Buddha, and reincarnationists. Modern pluralism presents one prevailing opinion about Jesus Christ. Like all great religious leaders, he is special but not unique. And he is certainly not exclusive. That would be close and narrow-minded. He is classed with the multitude of masters, grouped with the gurus, but not exalted as supreme. He is tucked into a comfortable corner of the religious pantheon so as to disturb no one. The assumption is that Jesus just couldn't have claimed to be the only way. That's undemocratic. So instead of facing Christ's challenge as it stands, the whole idea is dismissed as anti-pluralistic and close-minded. As a result, our ability to distinguish the real thing from the counterfeit is lost. We have been told over and over again that Christianity is just one religion among many. We've sent our children to public, government, or state schools where religion is taught as a matter of personal preference, with no preference being preferable. There is supposedly no true religion over against all false religions. Christianity is a religion, but not the religion. The Bible can sometimes be taught as fictional literature like Shakespeare, but it cannot be taught as the word of God. This would offend Muslims, Buddhists, Mormons, and most certainly atheists. Our children are then open to any and all philosophical gurus who are ready, willing, and seemingly able to lead the way to a new vision for the future. New world views are a dime a dozen. Those best able to express their views get the greatest following. In an interview with film director and producer Francis Ford Coppola, the aggressive nature and comprehensive effects of a new world view come to light. My dream is that the artist class, people who have Proven through their work that they are humanist and wish to push for what Aldous Huxley called the desirable human potentialities of intelligence, creativity, and friendliness will seize the instrument of technology and try to take humanity into a period of history in which we can reach for a utopia. Of course, it is possible for the technology to be misused. We could end up with a big brother, but we could also have a balanced society with an artist class leading the culture towards something approximating a happy family or tribe. At the moment, the nation is in a fog, and we've got to put our headlights on. Artists, those who rely on their intuition, can be the nation's headlights. Coppola's worldview comes on bold and bright through the larger-than-life silver screen. He doesn't set out to tell you, "'This is my worldview. God does not matter.'" Rather, he describes and promotes his worldview by creating a world that leaves out Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus is often mentioned in film, but only as an obscenity. Most audiences don't really note the expletives on film because Jesus has been trivialized in life. He was a great man. He may have been godlike, but we all have a similar spark of divinity. In a sense, we're all godlike, but to a different degree. Since no religion prevails in society, young people are susceptible to the latest attractions. There is no future. They are being told this by those advocating unilateral disarmament in the face of the threat of nuclear annihilation, and by those Christians who say, You cannot polish brass on a sinking ship. The sinking boat reference to Western civilization has been around a long time. If it had been taken seriously every time someone used it, we would be in a worse shape than we are now. The Reverend John Newton, the once infamous slave trader who wrote the classic Christian hymn, Amazing Grace, used the sinking ship metaphor in the 19th century in addressing a minister who believed that the Bible applied in some measure to politics. Allow me to say that it excites both my wonder and concern that a minister possessed of the great and important views expressed in your two sermons should think it worth his while to appear in the line of a political writer, or expect to amend our constitution or situation, by proposals of political reform. When I look around upon the present state of the nation, such an attempt appears to me no less vain and unseasonable than it would be to paint a cabin while the ship is sinking— or a parlor when the house is already on fire? Newton's words are curious in light of his kind words for William Pitt, of whom he said, I cannot but think that the providence of God raised up Mr. Pitt for the good of these kingdoms, and that no man could do what he has done, unless a blessing from on high had been upon his counsels and measures. Where would the abolition of slavery have gone without the work of Wilberforce? Keep in mind that it was Christians who worked to put an end to the evil trade by which Newton once gained his living. There was no civil war in England. It was done with peaceful means, unlike America's experience. There was the genuine belief that when the gospel and God's law are applied to all aspects of life, society changes. Those who propose a sinking ship scenario project no hope for an earthly future prior to the millennium. There is no possible chance to change things for the better. People like Coppola paint a picture of glamour for those without hope. It's no wonder that we are losing our future to those who offer at least the temporal vision of hope. Phony as a $3 bill. The average American and most Christians have grown up with this smorgasbord mentality, so they no longer can tell the real from the counterfeit. The writer to the Hebrew Christians describes this mindset. He stops in mid-thought, wanting to explain the priesthood of Jesus and how it is similar to the priesthood of Melchizedek. He recognizes that their spiritual discernment makes what he wants to write hard to explain. Hebrews 5.11 what had happened to these converts? They had become dull of hearing, Hebrews 5.11. By this time in their Christian walk, they should have been matured, advancing from milk to meat, 1 Corinthians 8, 1-2, 1 Peter 2.2. 2. Instead of progressing from the basics to becoming teachers, Hebrews 5.12, they are in need of someone once again to teach them the elementary principles of the oracles of God, verse 12. As a result, their senses were not trained to discern the good, the real, and evil, the counterfeit. Verse 14. When something like the New Age movement comes along, we have no reason to think that Christians and the typical American religionist will be able to tell the difference between the real and the counterfeit unless they have progressed to solid food. What is a counterfeit? A counterfeit is an illicit copy of an original designed to be passed off as the real thing. We're most familiar with the counterfeiting of United States currency. The important thing to remember about counterfeiting is that there is a genuine article that is being copied. If there is no genuine article, then there can be no counterfeit. If someone handed you a $3 bill, you would know immediately that it wasn't real. You might, however, be hard-pressed to spot a counterfeit $10 bill. We do not often consider theological counterfeiting as a way the devil might hide the truth from Bible-believing Christians. Yet the Bible shows us that there are counterfeit Christ, Matthew 24, 5, Acts 5:36 through 37, counterfeit prophets; Matthew 7:15, 24, 11, counterfeit miracles; Exodus 7:8 through 13, counterfeit angels; 2 Corinthians 11:14, counterfeit gods; Galatians 4:8, Acts 12:20 20 through 23, counterfeit good works; Matthew 7:15 through 23, counterfeit converts and disciples; 1 John 2:19 counterfeit spirits, 1 John 4, 1-3, counterfeit doctrines, 1 Timothy 4, 3, counterfeit kings, John 19:15. counterfeit names, Revelation 1311 through 18 compare 14, 1. and counterfeit gospels, Galatians 1, 6-10. Why should we be surprised if there are counterfeit kingdoms, Daniel 2, Matthew 4, 8-11, Acts 17, 1 through 9 and a counterfeit new age, Revelation 13:11 through 18 The new age movement is a counterfeit it wants the fruit of Christianity without the root what should this tell us when Jesus came to earth to do the work of his father there was heightened demonic activity satan's purpose was to counterfeit the work of Christ to confuse the people the devil knew his time was short Revelation 12:12 12, 12, Romans 16:20 he was making a last ditch effort to subvert the work of the kingdom Satan gathered his children around himself to call Jesus' mission into question john eight forty four At one point, Jesus was even accused of being in league with the devil luke eleven fourteen through twenty eight as Jesus moved closer to establishing peace with God for us through his death and resurrection, compare romans five 1, the power of the devil was grounded, made impotent luke ten eighteen but through Jesus' disciples, the world was turned upside down. Acts 17:6 Satan's kingdom was spoiled and left desolate. Luke 11:20, Acts 19:11 through 20. The apostle Paul then tells the Roman Christians that God would soon crush Satan, the great counterfeiter, under their feet. Romans 16:20. Religious corruption was Satan's new strategy for subverting God's kingdom work. Jesus's battles were with the religious leaders of the day. The scribes and Pharisees were scrupulously theological in their evaluation of Jesus. The law was quoted, but certainly misapplied. Jesus was always accused of not keeping the law, of not following Moses. The devil had the Pharisees convinced that Jesus' view of reality was false, the counterfeit, while their view was true, the original. In order for the Pharisees to keep up the charade, they needed to get rid of the original their counterfeit would no longer be considered a counterfeit because there would be no original around with which to compare it. The Counterfeit Kingdom Jesus came to install his kingdom through his marvelous grace. The kingdom was God's good news that sinners would be saved. The political savagery of Rome's kingdom and its promise of peace and salvation would die as God's kingdom flourished in the light of his unfathomable grace. John the Baptist was its forerunner. Repent for the Kingdom of God is at hand matthew three two God's grace made repentance a reality without grace, repentance would mean nothing, so entrance into the kingdom is God's doing. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of god john three five but the King demands obedience first, the sinner must repent bow before god in humble submission to him in effect to surrender unconditionally to god's demands second the new man or woman in christ must live in terms of the king's demands his life must reflect righteousness for the kingdom of god is not eating and drinking but righteousness and peace and joy in the holy spirit romans 14:17 compare matthew 6:33 for jesus the kingdom was established by fulfilling all righteousness matthew 3:15 This meant that he had to submit himself to the demands of his father. This is why his father could say at Jesus' baptism, "This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased." Matthew 3:17. Satan offers a similar program. Entrance into his kingdom comes through unconditional surrender to his ethical system. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory, and he said to him. All these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Matthew 4, 8-9 Satan wanted Jesus to give up the real for the counterfeit. Jesus' finished work of obedience and sacrifice leads John to write, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Revelation 11:15. The kingdom belongs to Jesus. It's his now. With this fact established, John writes that He will reign forever and ever. Because of Jesus' obedience, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 8-11 New Age new names. Babel revisited. God has a present operating kingdom in the world that Satan has been trying to duplicate for centuries. Counterfeiting the kingdom of God has been going on since the building of Babel. These kingdom rebels wanted to supplant God's name with a name of their own. In the Bible, naming something is a mark of dominion. God names himself, Exodus 3.14, Thus, man has no claim on God except when and how God permits him. God names Adam because he was formed from the dust of the ground, 2-7, a reminder to all of us that God created and sustains us. Compare Acts 17:24 through 28 Man did not create himself, and neither did he evolve through random chances in the cosmos. God has dominion over man. We find that Adam named Eve, woman, Hebrew, Esha, because she was taken out of man, Ish. Genesis 2.23 Adam has authority over Eve, Ephesians 5.22, and God has authority over Adam and Eve, for they are both named Adam, Genesis 5.2, compare Ephesians 5.23. Adam and Eve name their children, showing their authority over their offspring, Genesis 4.1-2. Cain built a city and called the name of the city Enoch, after the name of his son, Genesis 4.17. It was Cain's desire to extend dominion through his seed. The building of the Tower of Babel is a corruption of God's kingdom work. Where God is sovereign, man claims sovereignty for himself. God's kingdom is supplanted by man with horrendous consequences. Let us make a name for ourselves, Genesis 11:4. God's name would be rejected. A new age would dawn with man as master. Francis Schaeffer described the Tower of Babel as the first declaration of humanism. Babel grew out of man's desire to control and overrule the designs of God's kingdom, where the creature rules under the creator as a subordinate. Here is the theology that Satan offered to Adam, autonomous man's way to heaven. The tower was a link between heaven and earth, but one which men built, not God. The pinnacle of the tower represented the seat of power, the link between evolving man and the gods. The Babylon of Daniel's time is a continuation of the Babel theme in Genesis 11. Babel and Babylon were built in the land of Shinar, Genesis 11:2, and Daniel 1-2. We should expect the sovereignty and dominion theme to continue. Nebuchadnezzar had shown Judah that he was the new sovereign by taking the vessels of the house of God and bringing them to the house of his God, Daniel 1-2. How did Nebuchadnezzar extend his dominion? He took the best of the young men and indoctrinated them with a Babylonian conception of kingship to enter the king's personal service. 1.5 The leadership, the best in Israel, would be used to direct the nation in Babylonian ways. This is the dream of all tyrants and totalitarian regimes. Notice, however, that dominion is the goal in the names. Humanism, the belief that man is the center of the universe, is the new faith. Daniel and his three friends easily spotted the counterfeit. Many of the Israelites did not. Nebuchadnezzar expressed his sovereign claim by renaming them with Babylonian names. These young children had distinctly covenantal names with a common characteristic. The name of God was attached to each of them. The suffix of each name either has the general name of God, El, a shortened version of Elohim, or the personal name of God, Yah, a shortened version of Yahweh. Daniel means God has judged or God is my judge. Hananiah, Jehovah has been gracious. Mishael, who is what God is? Azariah, Jehovah has helped. The new names pointed the people to the new sovereign, the gods of Babylon. Sovereignty was transferred and dominion was continued, but under the name of the new sovereign. Kingship and kingdom are not denied. They are only reinterpreted. New Age humanism is no different. While New Agers do create new terms, they are more apt to redefine old and familiar ones. This is an act of rebellion and an expression of autonomy, because renaming and redefining are sovereign acts. Like the counterfeiter who hopes to grow rich through his engraving techniques, New Agers who fill biblical words and concepts with occult content do so in hopes of possessing the bounty of God's order through magic. Words like God, holistic, meditation, and healing are emptied of their biblical meaning, are then filled with New Age concepts with the intention of deceiving the unsuspecting. The kingdom of Christ is counterfeited to meet the needs of man. It is Babel revisited. We see this with Nebuchadnezzar's attempt to counterfeit God's kingdom by building a golden statue of man. In the king's mind, there would be no end to his reign. A gold statue endures and man would be the focal point god had shown the king in a dream that any kingdom built on the shaky foundation of man is doomed to failure and judgment daniel 2:19 through 45 on the other hand god's kingdom is a kingdom which will never be destroyed daniel 2:44 the issue therefore is not whether there is a kingdom rather it is whose kingdom will rule all other kingdoms denying the real thing Dave Hunt assumes that an operating earthly kingdom does not exist. He does not recognize that New Age humanism is a counterfeit of God's progressive kingdom activity on earth, in time and in history, because he has no conception of an earthly manifestation of the kingdom. For Hunt then, the kingdom that is being counterfeited is heaven itself, because God's kingdom does not even find expression in the earthly millennium. He writes, the millennium reign of Christ upon earth, rather than being the kingdom of God, will in fact be the final proof of the incorrigible nature of the human heart, but this does not conform to scripture. In Isaiah 65:17 through there is a description of what all Christians would certainly describe as kingdom-like conditions. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his days, for the youth will die at the age of one hundred, and the one who does not reach the age of one hundred shall be thought accursed, verse 20. This cannot be a description of heaven, since people will not die in heaven. Houses will be built, vineyards will be planted, verse 21, and the wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox, verse 25. For the traditional premillennialist, Isaiah 65:18 through 25 is describing conditions during the earthly millennium, the kingdom age. Most premillennial commentators see this as the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. In Jerry Falwell's Liberty Bible Commentary, which is described in the preface as eschatologically premillennial, without many of the excessive divisions of extreme dispensationalism, Edward F. Heinsen comments on Isaiah sixty five, eighteen through twenty. In this kingdom to come, time itself shall begin to fade away, and both the infant and the old man shall have filled, lived to fulfil, their days. The phrase the child shall die a hundred years old, means that if someone were to die at a hundred, he would be considered a mere child. However, by contrast, death shall cut off the sinner without hesitation. While all millennial commentators attempt to relate this promise to eternity, it is an utter impossibility to do so. Here we have the blessedness of the millennial kingdom of Christ in view. It is a time when men shall have the potential of living for a thousand years. Hence, anyone who shall die at a hundred shall be looked upon as a mere child. The kingdom is now. Hunt, with his anti-kingdom theology, Henson and other premillennialists, with their millennial kingdom theology, and all millennialists with their heavenly kingdom theology, all miss the point of Isaiah 65 because they fail to fully comprehend the meaning of God's words when He says, "For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth" (verse 17). Henson tells us that the prophet looks down beyond the church age, the tribulation period, and the millennial kingdom to the new heavens and the new earth, compare Revelation 21, of what he calls the eternal state. But there is no mention of the eternal state. This must be read into the text. Henson assumes the new heavens and the new earth of verse 17 must be the eternal state because it cannot mean the gospel age. New heavens, new earth, new birth. We believe that Isaiah 65:17 through 25 describes what the world will look like as the gospel message is faithfully preached and acted upon. This condition is described in New Creation Language. Thomas Scott comments, The context requires us to interpret the words, in this place, of that state of the church on earth which shall most resemble the world of glory, in knowledge, holiness, and felicity, and which will terminate in it. By the new creating power of God, the circumstances of the church and the character of men shall be so altered that it will appear as entirely a new world, so that the former confusions, iniquities, and miseries of the human race shall be no more remembered or renewed. The new heavens and new earth are parallel to the new birth. New creatures will mean a new creation. As Christians are renewed in Christ, so the world is renewed in Christ. Paul says of the new birth, Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 This parallels what God says in Isaiah 65.18 When the new heavens and a new earth come, new creation, the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Old things pass away. The new birth brings on such radical changes that a person in Christ is described as a new creation. In Galatians 6:15, Paul reminds us that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any value when it comes to the new birth. What is needed is a new creation. This new creation is God's doing, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2:10. When does the Christian become a new creation? The Bible says that it has happened. He is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Does the Christian progress after he has become a new creation? Yes. Is this new creation a perfect creation? No. But the important thing to keep in mind here is that the language used for the change that happens to anyone who comes to Christ is absolute and comprehensive. He or she is spoken of as being a new creature or a new creation. He or she is born again, John 3.3 which is new creation language. Now what is true of the individual is also true of the cosmos. Jesus' redemptive work was for the world, John 3.16. Why should we be surprised when the new covenant order is described as the recreation of heaven and earth? The kingdom of God reflects this new creation idea. John the Baptist comes on the scene describing the coming of the Messiah in cosmic terms. Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every ravine shall be filled up, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crook shall become straight, and the rough road smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Luke 3, 4-6 But doesn't the kingdom of God need the presence of the Savior to operate? This question is at the heart of the anti-kingdom position. The most prevalent belief among premillennial evangelicals today is that Jesus must be physically present on the earth before we see the kingdom manifested. But as the New Testament shows, the Spirit of God is here. Because the Spirit is here, Christ himself is with us. The Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Acts 16.7 John 14.15-21 through 21 is a prophecy of the coming of the Spirit. Jesus tells his disciples that he will return to them, which, in the context, is not a prophecy of the end of the world, but of Pentecost. He did not leave us orphans, John 14.18, but sent his spirit to be another comforter, 14-15. Compare 1 John 2-1. Paul goes so far as to say that in the resurrection, the last Adam has become a life-giving spirit, 1 Corinthians 15-45. In fact, Jesus' absence is necessary for the work of the church. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. John 17:7. 7. Jesus goes on to say that the Spirit will guide them into all truth. Verse 13. Thomas Sproul, addressing the presence of Christ during the millennium, wrote a century ago, The immediate power of God is never employed in administrating the affairs of his kingdom when the end can be accomplished through subordinate instrumentality. Dealings with the humanity of Christ when on earth was necessarily limited to those who had access to his bodily presence. It was not till after his ascension that the Comforter was sent, that the circle of fellowship was widened to embrace all who in every place call on his name. To have dealings with the humanity of Christ would now be no help, but a hindrance to communion with him. This gives meaning and force to the apostle's declaration. Though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet henceforth know we him no more. 2 Corinthians 5.16 This same truth he taught to Mary shortly after his resurrection. Touch me not, Mary, for I am not yet ascended to my Father. John 20.17 The condition of the presence of the Comforter on earth is the presence of Christ's humanity in heaven. If I go not away, the Comforter will not come to you. John 16.7 Through him and not through sensible intercourse with the humanity of Christ will the communion on earth be carried on between the head and the members, and to me it seems to be nothing else than slighting the comforter to expect the enjoyment of the blessedness of which he is the appointed channel of communication from the visible association with the humanity of Christ. Jesus shows us in his own words that he is present with his people now. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Matthew 18:20. The Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost and is now in the world, and Jesus is in the midst of his church. Christians should start acting like they believe these most fundamental truths. Who knows, we might see things change for the better. The Devil's Tactic How can there be such a thing as a new age energized by the devil unless there is a new age energized by God? Hunt seems to assume that Satan has not borrowed from the Christian worldview, that he has created this new age philosophy from scratch. But we know that Satan cannot create, he must still to keep his worldview running. Satan is the greatest counterfeiter in the universe. Many Christians have never considered such a possibility. They believe there is no way they could be tricked by the devil at least not on this point. They don't want to believe that there could ever be another explanation for why they are seeing new age thinking at this time in history. The devil wants us to believe that he is not what he is. He wants us to impute power to him, to make him more than what he is by nature. The devil then uses his imputed power against us. We believe he can accomplish all these feats using his own supposed inherent creative powers. He doesn't want us to think that there might be another explanation for the New Age movement. He wants the Christian to believe that anyone who stresses earthly victory is apostatizing. He wants those outside of Christ to believe that a New Age can be implemented with man as the central figure. C.S. Lewis, in his immortal book, The Screwtape Letters, addresses this very issue. Speaking to his apprentice devil Wormwood about his Christian patient, Senior Devil Screwtape writes, By the very act of arguing, you awake the patient's reason, and once it is awake, who can foresee the result? Even if a particular train of thought can be twisted so as to end in our favor, you will find that you have been strengthening in your patient the fatal habit of attending to universal issues and withdrawing his attention from the stream of immediate sense experiences. Your business is to fix his attention on the stream, teach him to call it real life, and don't let him ask what he means by real. The devil wants us to believe that he is in control of the world, that the church is weak, that God cannot use his redeemed and transformed people through the power of his spirit to advance his purposes in time and history. He hypnotizes us with the unbiblical assertion that he is in control of the world, that God's plans are on hold until God personally intervenes in history to reign over the earth. But even this is not enough, for Dave Hunt tells us that the millennial reign of Christ upon earth, rather than being the kingdom of God, will in fact be the final proof of the incorrigible nature of the human heart. Sin, then, is greater than God's efforts. The devil, in principle, wins the game. Satan can laugh at God's efforts through eternity, always reminding him that as long as the devil is around, he just can't succeed. Building a New Civilization When we as Christians advocate the building of a Christian civilization, much of what we say and write seems to be similar to what advocates of New Age humanism are espousing. But in fact, we are not imitating New Agers. They are imitating God and His kingdom. The New Age kingdom is the counterfeit kingdom. In effect, the New Age kingdom is a Johnny-come-lately kingdom that cannot be sustained because man is its foundation, Daniel 2-3. through Postmillennialism was the prevalent eschatological view of the Puritans, who came to these shores to establish a city on a hill. Of course, the inception of a new world order, or a new age, began with Jesus' earthly ministry, was proclaimed at his Great Commission, Matthew 2818 through 20 empowered at Pentecost, Acts 2, and was visibly manifested at the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. The new age of Jesus' kingdom is worked out by faithful Christians throughout history. As Christians, we should not be fooled by the new age movement, and neither should we fear it. We understand human nature, man is a sinner, God's program for history, God works in history to accomplish his purposes and to defeat the works of the devil. The importance of this age, God's kingdom is now, and all competing kingdoms are being relegated to the dustbin of history. The biblical emphasis on decentralization, no one earthly institution has all power and authority, all authority comes from God, and an optimistic vision of the future, God's enemies cannot win no matter how strong they might seem to be. We are seeing the battle lines being drawn once again because the church is steadily advancing, storming the very gates of hell, Matthew 16:18. It seems that nearly everybody is talking about victory, but the secularist vision of the new age cannot last. There is nothing original in it. Everything it has that is of any use has been stolen from the pattern of Christ's kingdom. As soon as Christians realize that the theft has taken place, they will abandon their lethargy and pessimism What are God's people waiting for? We have God's infallible and inerrant word, the power of the Holy Spirit and the ministry of the gospel. The New Agers have counterfeits, yet we're supposed to believe that the church cannot extend the boundaries of the kingdom beyond a few souls plucked from the burning? We suspect that many people in the church are not even willing to try. What if this generation of Christians refuses even to try, believing that it cannot be done? then G.K. Chesterton's words cease to be an observation and become an indictment. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. The New Agers are just a testimony to these words. The sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own generation than the sons of light. Luke 16.8 The philosophy and actions of the New Age movement should shame Christians. New Agers at least believe that change can come, yet they only have confidence in man or at most some cosmic and personal force. We have the Lord of Glory, the ruler of kings of the earth, God Almighty. For too long, Christians have had only a bleak earthly future to offer the lost. Even today, many Christians do not believe there is an earthly future. The world is despised and rejected. The secularists are doing what we should have been doing, although they have done a terrible job. They are in visible control for now. No wonder things look bad. What do we expect when we turn the world over to people who deny God and the power of his gospel? It's time for Christians to present alternatives to the bankrupt New Age philosophy without jettisoning the realities of a Christian civilization. We can either react in despair or compete head-to-head and win the battle through excellent kingdom work. Zechariah 1.18-21 Conclusion The ideology of the New Age is satanic and humanistic. It is a result of the influx of Eastern religious thought into the West. It is therefore a dangerous movement that must be resisted by Christians. In order to resist the movement effectively, we must recognize New Age humanism for what it is, a counterfeit of the true New Age and the true kingdom, which were both inaugurated by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. New Age humanism cannot be resisted by retreating hopeless Christians. In fact, a Christian retreat will aid and abet the New Ages program. Instead, Christians must resist confidently, knowing that the true king fights with and for them.